Hocus Pocus, we're we're live. Finally. I think I've made jokes about Split Take being live before, but now Well, it's just as live as it's always been. We just now have video. Now with video. There is visual proof of our existence. This is not an elaborate bit done by a guy creating two characters of similar but also different film taste and creating a podcast out of it. This is two people with faces and rooms to we we have real faces we are in fact real people you can now confirm for yourself unless of course this is a deep fake and 4d chess where it's a fake podcast but real (laughs) who knows who knows you know i i might have even mentioned this before on the podcast but i've uh, something i've heard from my dad before is that we apparently sound similar do we i don't know i don't think so at all but he he thinks so. And so that's, White people, that's they all sound the same. Yeah. Maybe. But now now someone could physically distinguish the two of us as two two distinct people, which we are, and we have that's two true. distinct film perspectives. Uh, which doesn't always manifest itself on the podcast, but it most certainly does in a few select films. Thus you get the split take. Yes, the rare the titular split take gemstone it would be too obvious to name a podcast called split take where every episode is someone disagreeing no 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 the real subtle podcast titling is when it's very rare very rarely is there split Uh, only if it's justice league welcome to the split take podcast if uh, this is the first time i'm gonna guess that there may be first time listeners viewing this episode because it's going on youtube and there are people and people tend to click on youtube videos with people's faces on them more it's true that's that's just a thing so uh welcome to split take podcast i am your co-host jacob and i'm your other co-host chandler and we're here to talk about movies. Just a quick rundown. Every episode, we talk about two movies most of the time. Uh, one movie is whatever the hell we feel like it, usually a new movie if there is one. And the second movie we talk about is from the BFI Sight and Sound 2012 Best Films of All Time list, the critics and the directors list. This week, combined. we're going to be talking combined. Yes. Through a, a wonderful algorithm and spreadsheet, we have figured out the optimal way of combining the critics and the directors' opinions. Uh, even though I think at this point we have foregone the order as we've skipped a few. No, uh, we just are, do whatever we feel like. Yeah, these days. Yeah. It's kind of on, kind of still on order. Anyway, yeah, so uh, this week we are the movie. Our free choice of the week is going to be Ghostbusters, the original, because Chandler had never seen it before. And our second, our BFI movie of the week is from the critics list. And it is Sherlock Jr. from 1924, directed by Buster Keaton. Why we are in an interesting scenario. This is a very interesting episode to record to record on video uh, because we already recorded it. Would you like to tell them what, the circumstances that have led up to, to this particular well, recording session? Uh, we recorded this uh, last week or two weeks ago, and then uh, Jacob recorded the audio wrong, so we couldn't use that. So now we're here. And coincidentally, it lined up with uh, Jacob's decision to start recording this. Like the yes. video of it. So. So now we're, now we're, we're also video. we don't uh, just also the only other time this has happened was me losing the audio 
for our Blade Runner discussion. So it hasn't ha- it's happened Good before, time. but never on re- this massive a scale. Yeah, we still haven't re-recorded that Blade Runner audio, but that'll no. that'll be coming out eventually. And yeah, eventually. Uh, it might as well take the time to to mention that this will probably come out very soon. Uh, and the issue with that is that there are like 10 episodes I have yet to edit. These episodes are all audio only. So audio only. Where we're gonna it's gonna be a little jump forward and then we'll have to go back and I'll release those as we go along. But I think for the most part, our future episodes will be video. And as per usual, it's more custom. Yeah, it's more fun. I mean, we we obviously we see each other record every time anyway, so might as well uh, do it on Zoom and hit record. Mm -hmm. That way we have it. That way that way we have it. So as per tradition, we usually start off with a a good chunk of time discussing what we have been watching each week and uh, just uh, a check in of our, our cinematic diary. And what else has been going on? So Chandler, what have you been watching? Well, uh, it's difficult because I I want to talk about the things that I watched last time, but I don't remember what those things were. So I'm just going to go through my letterbox, find the stuff that I really want to talk about. And then go for it. Good um, I re- <laughs> I watched a new movie. What probably my first uh, one of my first new watches of the year. Uh, and that was Eric Andre's Bad Trip. <laughs> I saw that. I saw that on Netflix. Yeah, it's Netflix. It's okay. real. This is, has a really weird uh, release history. So initially it was bought by Amazon last year and it was supposed to come out on Amazon. And then somehow it got leaked. So it was on Amazon Prime like three or two months ahead of its release for free for like two days. And then somebody realized that that was going on they took it off amazon then amazon canceled their plans to release it and then it got bought by netflix and now it's on netflix a year later that that is most certainly a journey i didn't even it know is that. strange wow. i really like eric andre i think he's absolutely hilarious he's uh, his show is one of the funniest things currently on television um so this is it's similar to like borat and bruno where it's like a prank show mm. it's kind of like uh just goofing on people uh, but this this movie is strange because they craft like a very simple rom-com like narrative and they act out that narrative through these uh, live pranks. So it's a combination so of like a, it's pranks with a narrative throughout. Uh, they're trying yeah. to conform the pranks to the narrative. Yes. A bit. So the basic premise is that Eric Andre uh, uh, has a chance run in with his high school crush, um, who is now like an art um, uh, gallery woman. And she like casually invites him to go to her art expo in New York. So these two friends steal uh, one of their sister's cars and drive through to New York. And there's a bunch of pranks along the way. Some of it's very funny. Some of it's very childish, but very funny. Um, just seeing but the difference between something like this and like Borat and Bruno is that Borat and Bruno, they kind of make fun of the people that are in the movie for good reason, especially in Borat. <laughs> yes. Some horrible people in Borat. Deserving in of this ridicule. one. Yes. In this one, it is mainly unsuspecting just uh, uh, citizens and. 
Um, but they really, through these pranks, give these people time to shine. And it kind of it, it's it's a movie that made me feel weirdly good inside because a lot of these pranks that happen, you have some people who are really sticking their neck out for the cast of this movie in a way that reaffirms me that there's still some good in the world. It, it was not what I was expecting in that regard. It's a very unique movie, and I recommend it because it's on Netflix. And it's only it's 83 minutes. It's funny, mm. very stupid, but very funny. I'm definitely um, going to watch it. I, I saw it. I saw you had watched it and then I saw it on Netflix and I was like, why the hell not? Yeah, I was it's, almost it's, tempted it's, to watch it uh, the other night, just on the spur of a moment when I found it. But I'll reserve it. Well, maybe in a week or it's so. It's good. Um, I watched Casino Royale. It's pretty good. <laughs> the the You have to specify because there is a older Casino Royale. Is there really? The new There's. one. The newer one. The Granted, Daniel Craig, James Bond, fifteen years film. old. Yeah, Jesus Daniel Craig. Christ, wow. Yep, fifteen years old. I yep. don't know. Maybe it seems older, or maybe it doesn't. Two thousand six. I'm just yeah. like it seems. Yeah, yeah. it felt newer. Not, not that it is. It does. It's, it's is... a film that probably could have come out today. It's still like that style is still very much used. It's it still feels very modern. It's um. If I remember correctly, it's the first Daniel Craig James Bond. Yep. That uh, Mads- Quantum of Solace, Skyfall, yeah. and Spectre. Spectre. Yeah. Yep. Um, it's pretty good. Uh Mads Mickelson, I saw it because of him. He's great. Of course. Um it Mads Mickelson, I will say, exits the movie. And when he exits the movie, is not as good of a movie. But you know, I the action's really forget good. Forget how long. He exits the film and there's like another half hour or is it more? Yeah, there's like a good 30 minutes. Okay. And like 10 of those 30 minutes is just wrapping up stuff that doesn't matter because the next 20 minutes is it's good. It's pretty good. Um, I'm on an action movie kick. I really like Mads Mikkelsen. I checked it out. I don't regret it. Now all I have to do is watch Spectre and Quantum of Solace. Uh. I watched Gremlins. It's pretty great. It's really, really sloppy in terms of like screenwriting and structure. Hmm. But the Gremlins are undeniably masterfully crafted as far as like creatures go. Um, Gremlins is one of those movies that I always like, I swear I've seen, but I haven't. I, I just feel like I must have seen that. I feel like I remember seeing it, but I, I haven't. I haven't seen it. Hmm, it's good. Maybe it's maybe it's all the footage that the uh, uh, Mike Stoklasa and the Red Letter Media Plinket reviews uses some footage from that. Yeah, from Gremlins. Cool. Because they so maybe, they're they're maybe big, that. they're very big fans of it. And after I watched it, I listened to the commentary track, which uh, really helped me to appreciate its charm while also be even more critical of its flaws. Um, because mm. th- there's just really weird structural decisions that don't really pay off, but it's still fun. Uh, I watched Crimson Peak, Guillermo del Toro. Not bad. Another one of those things where it's structurally it's kind of dumb because it it's like it, it spends 45 minutes setting up this subplot that goes nowhere. <laughs> Which that's mm. always fun when a movie does that. But eh, eh. I I recommend it. Well, you, uh, you know, uh, I mean, that must have been uh, Guillermo del Toro's precursor to him getting ready to make 
Shape of Water. No. Which is filled with Here is a split take. That don't go Here is a split take. One that we haven't commented on because it's been four years, but I love Shape of Water. Uh, I think it's horribly overrated. is not based. Ooh. Ooh. Is it better than Green Book? Yes. Of course. Okay. Okay, I'm just saying. A great many things are better than Green Book. That's true. Simply for the fact that Green Book is Green Book. And yeah. nothing to do with the quality in and of itself. But no, it. I have given Shape of Water its due. I've seen it more than once. Same reaction both times. See, I've only seen it once. And it was a very uh, it was a very odd experience because I remember seeing it. I saw it in a theater by myself and I remember coming out of it being like amazed. And I immediately mm-hmm. like, t- like texted our group chat and I said, like, guys, I saw Shape of Water. It was amazing. Not knowing that you and Nate had already seen it. And then I was just uh, treated with a bunch of really you liked that. Shape of Water is very good. Uh, two quick ones real quick. Uh, at Eternity's Gate, I watched this. It was kind of bad. <laughs> like I, I, what is at Eternity's Gate? That is oh, the one. Oh, that's the one. Yes. Okay. Willem Dafoe is Van Gogh. Willem yes. Dafoe. I really. I saw liked that Willem one Dafoe. second. Yeah, of course. One. I yes. actually saw that on uh, Netflix, and I I'm always looking through Netflix to to find movies that my mom may like. As I've I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, I, I, violence, uh, horror, fantasy, sci-fi. Those are all out. None of it. Get rid of it. Uh, so I really have to like <laughs> focus in. And at Eternity's Gate was one that was like, oh, I might watch that with her. So I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I, I yeah, she might like it. Um, I personally did not like it because it felt so student filmy. And by hmm. that, I mean, it's a lot of characters that just just show up for one scene to have these weirdly intrusive philosophical conversations and in between these scenes is just a bunch of scenes of Willem Dafoe walking through nature in like the woods in 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 the Dutch greenery um Willem Dafoe is great he's always great of course um but he's playing a man who I have a very I have a passing knowledge of Van Gogh I know he wasn't in his 70s when he died <laughs> He's playing very old and it's funny because they have like scenes with his brother, Theo Van Gogh. And the guy who plays him is the guy who. Yeah. The guy who plays him is the guy who plays Stalin's son in the death of Stalin. (laughs) What marvelous. (laughs) So first of all, I can't see him as anything else but Stalin's son. And second of all, they're talking about being brothers and growing up together. One man's clearly like 38. The other guy's like pushing 70. I can only excuse that so far, but the, the this movie above all else was boring mm. and uninspired. And the camera work was weirdly claustrophobic. Lots of like insane close ups on faces during conversations. And the way that they portray um, Van Gogh's mental illness, they just use like just the cheapest like editing tricks in the book where, you know, it's like they artificially slow down time and they overlap footage over each other right. uh, conversations that played out in the previous scene are echoed back in his subconscious. It's just, Oh, it's, it's the most student filmy kind of movie ever. 
And it was the guy uh, who, the guy who's it. made some stuff that people like. It's the same yeah. director as uh, the Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Oh, that's a that's which a I know movie. people really love. Um, yeah. That guy is even in this movie briefly. The French guy. Oh, as a French man. The guy's in the Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah, the actor. Yeah, and lastly, I'm going to end this with my number one movie of the year so far. Fitzcarraldo. Which, I wow. finally got around to watching wow. Fitzcarraldo. You got around to watching another Werner Herzog. What is this? This is Herzog number three. This is, yeah, three. Because I've seen Nosferatu and Aguirre. Aguirre, mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. I'm beginning to do a lot of German. On the podcast. Yes. Still, have, yes. still yeah. haven't edited that. Yeah, that was a recent one, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is amazing. This movie is incredible. Um, I, I was very attracted to this idea because... It is it's two of my favorite kinds of movies, the kinds of movies where people yell at God and the kinds (laughs) of movies that have boats. (laughs) Double whammy, double Double whammy. So I was interested from the start. Klaus Kinski is one of those people that I just find fascinating as an actor. Mm -hmm. There is I don't think there's ever been an actor that commands the screen more than him. He's just so menacing and interesting and odd that every moment that he's on screen, you're just glued to whatever it is he's doing. Maybe that's why people think he's a good actor. I think he's just a good actor in general. But it's it's like this because I watched this and then right after that, I watched Burden of Dreams, which is the, the documentary about the making of this, which for some mm. reason I thought was made by Herzog, but it's not. Um, It's like this weird thing where the behind the scenes story of the movie is also pretty crazy. And it oh oh it, yeah it, most certainly yeah and a lot of that, what, you'd expect that from Herzog yeah well a lot of the stuff that Herzog did is pretty similar to what Fitzcarraldo the character himself actually did because you could argue that he exploited the native people I mean like he paid them but a lot of what he was doing was ethically shaky and a few people even died in the making of this movie because it was rivaling uh, native tribes fighting each other about mm. the the river that they were using and i don't know it, it's 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 a very very good movie um it's one it's of those movies that where feels it's like, very mythic almost monumentally yeah. mythic in the in the grand scope of of cinema because it is like herzog does actually lift this boat over over water and goes through like so so much stuff to make this like it's all practical the things that happen in the film and and actually going down that river is Wow, like even more so, like A Gear the Wrath of God is is kind of a small film in comparison. Yeah. And I think for me, ultimately, Klaus Kinski's performance, if I remember correctly, was for me more his presence as a physically uh, intimidating actor works more in Fitzcarraldo and with that character and the whole world that that Herzog builds around it and with the kind of insane plan that that character wants to do. I think it all comes together in a way that that's why I like Fitzcarraldo more. Yeah. Um, well, the funny thing is that I knew this is based on a true story. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, then they're explaining the true story in the, the documentary. And apparently the real guy, he didn't he didn't pull the boat over the hill. He disassembled the boat, brought all the parts over to the other side of the hill and reassembled the boat. And then Herzog's like, that is not as interesting we're going to we're going to drag the boats over the hill 
and then everyone's you must like that's stare death in the face <laughs> to make a film that is worth anyone watching and it's crazy because he he like reimagined this history as something more interesting but at the same time everybody's like you can't do that you can't pull a boat over the hill so what you're seeing is not only like Fitzcarraldo's attempt to drag this a boat over a hill but it's also werner herzog's attempt to do the exact same thing so there's like this metatextual like uh element to this movie that i find really fascinating um but yeah it's masterpiece it's currently my favorite movie of the year that i've seen for the first time wow yeah. yes I'm, I'm surprised i was expecting you to like it i, I was not expecting you to like it that much that's <laughs> Boats, pretty cool. In philosophy, yeah, are you? Are you, you don't do get you like boats? Is that a thing? I love boats. I'm a nautical fan. A nautical fan. That's why I like the lighthouse. That's why I like Pirates of the Caribbean. That's why I like Lifeboat. I guess I'll have to find some more boat movies for you. I can't think of any about. right off the top like, of my head. Uh, uh, isn't that one of the new Agatha Christie's? That's what, um, Death uh, Death on the Nile. Death on yes. the Nile. That's a boat movie. There are quite a few uh, Agatha Christie boat related mysteries. That's something she she liked to do. So I also like Captain Phillips. Ah, that's another. I haven't thought about Captain Phillips in a long time. I speaking think of too much. Continue. Hmm. Speaking of Agatha Christie, uh, forgive me for going over all of this again, because I did talk about it uh, last oh, episode. Fine. I'm currently working. It's apology to you, but also an introduction for the rest of the audience of I'm a huge <laughs> Agatha Christie fan. Like, like I don't. Now, is it Agatha Christie specifically or the murder mystery genre? Both. Both. Because I feel like she's kind of the, the queen of it all. She but is. She is. I know you I also mean, like Knives Out. I do. I love murder mysteries in general. Like, I, I they're just great. Like, I. Something about that genre and the uh, particularly the Britishness of of her <laughs> novels, which I think surprisingly translates into Knives Out well, because uh, it's interesting how a lot of murder mysteries are based around some kind of like class conflict. Like that's something kind of inherently uh, involved in a lot of murder mysteries, because uh, either revenge because someone's wealthier or more successful than you or. <laughs> Uh, killing someone because you want their money anyway uh, but that's a very British thing uh, to do and then I which is why I think Knives Out works well but neither here nor there but uh, the thing I love about Agatha Christie is you know following along the mysteries and like trying to figure it out but you know as you as I rewatch them because I rewatch them all the time uh, it's fun seeing those clues and like piecing it together retrospectively and sometimes I forget the mysteries or like the solution is right on the tip of my tongue. I'm like, what, what were the clues that fit together? I know it's this person, but it, it, <laughs> I've recently been rewatching a lot of the the Agatha Christie's Poirot TV show, which is one of one of my favorite things ever, period. Um, and how long has it been running? 19 late 1980s to finished in 2013. And it is 70 episodes long. It was like, they were like mini, mini, uh, seasons, Only 70 episodes? Sort of. 
Oh, yeah, interesting. yeah. So what they did is it, it's they add they adapted every single uh, Hercule Poirot mystery. So there's seventy of them, including short stories. Mm-hmm. And the earlier seasons, I think the first five or six, were short, forty-five, fifty-minute episodes, and those are a lot of fun. They're very light and breezy, and it's harder to follow the mysteries there. It they feel more superficial in a way that you know it's hard to cram the. Um, psychology of the characters in there which agatha christie likes to do particularly with the uh, the detective poirot who's all about analyzing people's psychology um, and then later on there's like a break where i think the producer of the television show changed there was a slight hiatus in the late 90s and the style of the show changed to be more serious dramatic and kind of a big lavish tv show uh style wise think downton abbey that kind of uh prestige british drama and it uh both styles of the two two halves of the the series are are they have their own merits and for that second half of the the series there was like five episodes per season and they were all feature length tv movies so 90 minutes mm. some were even approaching two hours um but it's interesting. I still pop them in like candy. Like, oh, I'll watch one 90 minute episode. I'm like, ah, I can go for another. That's it's just a, just a TV episode. Um, but I, I just keep watching them. And every year I usually go back and, and rewatch them. I think at this point I've seen every episode at least five times. All 70? All 70 episodes. Yes. Wow. Uh, some, maybe more. The one of these days I will I will recommend one and I'm, I've been as I've been rewatching the series I'm like which one do I want to recommend Chandler <laughs> do I do I want to show you the the comical overly British first half of the uh, the TV show where it is it's aggressively British as I've I've claimed before and it it's very funny and uh, I, I cannot think of a more British thing in the world uh, and. Or do I want to recommend one of the one of the later ones? But who, who knows? The first yeah, one I ever it's watched. The same guy playing Poirot all throughout. Yes, David Suchet, the one and only true Hercule Poirot. <laughs> there, there are others, and they're they're pretty good too. But there's only one David Suchet, and he's the Heath Ledger of Poirot. Yeah, I think I think that is a adequate comparison. Uh, except obviously, uh, he's he was alive a bit longer. To, to a play tab, that character, a tad, <laughs> a tad, yeah. still kicking it, still doing stuff. Pretty, pretty cool. Uh, have you? This Not is a, a legacy. Complete tangent. Have you ever heard of uh, the play that goes wrong? So it's a, it's a British theatrical production that I think was like the entirety of it was on YouTube for a while, and they do this this shtick where they put on a play, and the joke of the play is that the actors in the play keep messing up and everything keeps going wrong with <laughs> the production of it and they like try to pass it off and it's it's actually one of the funniest things i've ever seen but david suchet plays a uh, um a narrator they did a a version of peter pan which is absolutely wonderfully charming and hilarious um and he plays the narrator for that uh particular stage production and there's there's a really one of the fun funniest things i've ever seen in my entire life after having been a poirot fan for years at that point uh like halfway through two-thirds of the way through the the stage production someone gets knocked out on stage by a falling light or something and uh no one knows what to do 
So David Suchet stands up. Obviously, they're in England, so people know about the Poirot series. And he's like, Madame et Monsieur, there has been a murder. <laughs> and he goes into the Poirot character for like five <laughs> seconds, and it's it's completely unexpected and marvelous. But Did he actually get knocked out, or is that like a joke? It, it, it's a joke. Okay. Yeah. I think there's Maybe like sure. a I think there's like a short clip I, I could send you, but it's it it's funny. There is actually there's on YouTube. I'll include a link. I think it's like the the murder at, at Marston Manor. I, I think I might be including like five references in there somewhere. Um <laughs> but there's a clip where they put on like a short 10 minute production that's kind of like a, a taster of what they do. So maybe I'll, I'll send that to you. It's it's funny. And I think it's it's a murder mystery and Anywho, Agatha Christie's Poirot. I recommend it. The end of that diatribe, I guess, is uh, is that. And I'm currently working on a analysis of the uh, the various adaptations of Murder on the Orient Express. And I think there's five or six, depending on how you, you want to count you've them. You've seen it here, folks. We do it all. French New Wave, Full Metal Alchemist, Poirot. We are truly jacks of many trades. And every once in a while, an actual film classic. Like Ghostbusters. <laughs> like. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler yeah. alert. <laughs> so I watched those. And then I watched the Thomas Vinterberg's The Hunt, which is one of my favorite things I've watched this year for me, because that is just one epic movie. Freaking love Thomas Vinterberg. I don't I don't is, understand. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, epic is not the best word because it's not like some crazy uh, giant scale movie. It's pretty. My feelings for it are epic. Yes. How much I like it, not the film itself. It's interesting because that that particular movie, I feel like, is even more relevant than it was eight or nine years ago, whenever it came out. Because the general like the general plot of the movie is that Mads Mikkelsen plays a kindergarten teacher who um, after I don't even remember what he does to the kid, like they have some sort of argument and then the kid uh, accuses him basically of uh, sexual molestation. Um, and he's clearly not uh, guilty of it, but it's just the well, accusation. The point is that, I mean, the, the film is told from his perspective. Yeah. So yeah. we know he's not guilty from. Before yeah, we know he's starts. not guilty, but it doesn't matter because the accusation alone is enough to drag him through the mud. Um, and, you know, this is 2012 and it came out. And obviously it's it's a it's a pretty um, uh, everlasting concept. But in the in the current uh, social climate, it's even more like, I don't know, it's something that immediately pulls you in. Yes. And in a way that it's strange, because I think if it was made, if it was made now, it would feel almost pandering or it feel like the uh, cancel condescending. Yeah, it would feel like that. But it's not because ironically enough, it is against canceling it's not really against anything against or or for anything it's the same thing with another round yes yes that movie's not against or for drinking he (laughs) does the the um playing both not playing both sides but um showing centrist cinema (laughs) centrist cinema uh but but showing (laughs) really showing both sides to a a argument or to a story because you know can't canceling is a, a battle of narratives one narrative of what the hell are you talking about i don't deserve to be canceled for this and then narrative number two is you need to go away um, yeah. and sometimes it's justified and uh, you know other times 
uh, in the in the case of the hunt, not justified. I'm, no, I won't speak of any real life examples because I don't think I'm qualified to. But, um, <laughs> I'm sure there will be three more by the time this episode comes out. Right. But it is a uh, it's such a well made movie, it, and it, it's well made in a way that isn't particularly flashy. It's uh, I immediately think of something like Lawrence of Arabia or Citizen Kane, where like the the shot composition is telling you a story in and of itself, and it's yeah. it's grandiose. There's a point to how the director's framing things, but with Thomas Vinterberg's filmography, he kind of just lets the camera live in the the world of the characters and it, it he's not doing anything particularly magnificent like there's not low angle shots or high angle shots to give you power dynamics or anything like that it's just here's the camera here are the actors and he's filming it in this very like it's not free form it feels very controlled and very um purposeful but in a way that isn't as purposeful in the way that you know something like Citizen Kane is that's telling you the story visually, and yet it it's, works. It's it's performance based film that doesn't feel like theater. It's it's like John Cassavetes, but <laughs> polished. <Good>. Yeah, <laughs> John Cassavetes is the uncut gem. Speaking of your your shirt there, and oh, yeah. Thomas Vinterberg is the polished thing that you you find in the the jewel case yeah. later on both good but different. this is the movie that um uh, that made me very interested in mads mickelson as an actor so i do think he's a very mm-hmm. interesting actor he's he's got a lot of range he mm-hmm. can play the, the dorky dad type and he can play the bond villain um but i think in this movie in particular he's just like he, so much is thrown at him and he breaks in the most subtle of ways. And it's not until like towards the end where you can like see it all, take it its full toll. But I, I feel like with any other actor, it wouldn't be nearly as directly captivating. And you know, part of the part of the maybe the issue with that style of filmmaking is that now that I look back on it, I'm like, what really happened in the film? Because it's it takes its time. And not a lot happens, but it's a lot of just characters reacting and uh, all that kind of stuff. But so as I look back, I'm like, is it really five stars? But it's it's something that I, I I'm not really questioning it because as I was watching it, the experience of watching it was so viscerally entertaining and engrossing and it shocking, uh, engrossing in a way that like you you want to turn away, but you can't. And I think that's the case for. Uh, other Thomas Vinterberg films, which The Celebration, which I still haven't finished, unfortunately, got halfway through with that about a week and a half ago. Oh, now. oh yeah, you started it. Yeah, yeah. fun. Yeah. <laughs> Good movie. Can't. I'll, I'll, maybe See, I'll talk about the that thing. next time. Um, the and then another round is also very, very captivating. Yeah, it, it's similar. Um, because you know, above all, a film should be entertaining it should be captivating so i agree um it's not flashy but the way that it is told like within the first like scene or two you're there for the whole ride and that's really what matters to me in a movie um another round is similar in that when i was watching it 
I thought, okay, this is pretty good. I finished it. I thought it was good. Um, but like the more and more I sit with that movie, it's currently my favorite like movie of 2020, like a new movie. Mm-hmm. Um, cause it's only gotten stronger. I'm sorry, Mank. <laughs> Mank's a close Poor second. Mank. Poor Mank. Um, but he's got, he's got a very interesting style. Uh, as far as I know, it's a style that really only fully shines in his Danish language uh, movies. The English ones, not as much. Um, all he knows about is that one with Joaquin Phoenix that apparently is meh. But yes, Hunt, very good movie. I think the only other one I know far from the maddening crowd. Something like that. I don't know. It's like Bomb. I'll probably search out his other movies just to to see get a taste of his English language oeuvre. But uh, there's already a, a, an English version of another round, an American version of another round. Don't know why. Don't know why they need that. But yeah. yeah. Hey, what are you gonna do? it do- it. It won't affect the the one, the only another round by Thomas Vinterberg. As bad as it's it true. could possibly be, we will always have the original. Well, yeah, it's not it's not a parasite situation because obviously the Adam McKay parasite is going to be much better. Uh, obviously, Bong Joon-ho. if anyone could improve upon perfection, it's Adam <laughs> McKay. If anyone can take a subtle story and make it more nuanced, it's Adam McKay. Uh, OK, quick rundown of a few things. I watched the Outrage trilogy uh, by director. Hmm, Takashi Kitano. Yeah who has directed a great, a great many Japanese films. Uh, I am a huge, huge fan of the Yakuza genre, and I, I found those. They were mostly for free on Amazon Prime. The first one wasn't, but uh, after that, everything else was uh, on there for free. Watched it. I, I am further convinced that everything, uh, 90% of the Yakuza genre is exactly the same. Same tropes, <laughs> same style, scene composition, same framing devices, everything. It's it remarkably consistent as as a genre uh it, with some outliers it's an echo like chamber of personal. style yeah i mean it the the style was created in battles without honor and humanity and uh, who needs to improve you know what why fix what's not broken why fix it uh i also great i i recommend those films if you like the yakuza genre and they're kind of uh niche i suppose uh but they are they are newer probably some of the newest Yakuza films I've, I've watched. Cause usually I'm watching the seventies, uh, sixties, seventies, eighties Yakuza films, which are, are charming because of how low budget and crappy the footage is. And that <laughs> I like that, but it was fun seeing a new one in HD, uh, watched heart eight, the Paul Thomas Anderson film. I have now finished PTA's filmography. It's decent. That's all I'll say about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, Last thing I will talk about before we continue is the great filmmaker, King Hu. King Hu is the one of the originators of the of the Wuxia uh, genre from China, Taiwan, all, all that. Uh, sorry, I've mentioned Taiwan. Our podcast has now been banned in China. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> um, but King Hu, he worked in Hong Kong and uh, Taiwan. Excellent director, not particularly well known in the, um, or at least he doesn't get a lot of of due in the the art house genre uh, community. Uh, obviously, he's in the Criterion Collection, 
So he gets some recognition there, but even then on like the Criterion subreddit, I get the feeling that he's not really mentioned all that often. I think he should be, considering that he, he is one of the originators of a, a an entire genre that people seem yeah. to like. Like, well, we will be talking about him shortly. Yes, yes, we will. Oh my goodness, that yes, something. Why, why, maybe enlighten people. Why will we? Well, uh, there's a movie that I brought to Jacob's attention that looks really good, and that movie is Goodbye Dragon Inn. Yeah, there's my copy. Really Oh, there, yeah, yeah, there we go. Uh, it's a movie about a a closing Taiwanese film theater on its last night of uh, uh, of screening movies, and the movie that the last movie that they show is Dragon Inn, a film by this guy. Um, so we're gonna do a double feature of Dragon Inn and Goodbye Dragon Inn. Now maybe not next episode, but the episode after that, we'll do that. Yes. And uh, so, yes, I'm, I'm a big fan of King Hu as a director. It, it really just boiled down to Dragon Inn and Touch of Zen. A Touch of Zen is one of those films where I watched it the first time. It's like, this is interesting. It's doing something unique. And I moved on. And then I just kind of kept thinking about it. And it grew in my mind uh, over the over the months, years, maybe at this point. I, I can't remember the last time I watched I watched it for the first time. Um but it's now one of my my favorite films. I think it's at the very end of my. You've only seen it once, f- mm, three times. I've seen it three times oh. now, um, and I think it's like number forty eight or something on my top fifty favorite films of all time list. I have the Criterion on the shelf back there. Uh, it's an epic film. It is a if you like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, it is like the the original King Hu, very much inspired Ang Lee later on to make uh, that film, and I, I had seen. Touch of Zen, Dragon Inn, and I wanted to see more of his his oeuvre, his filmography. So I sought out a film called The Legend of the Mountain, which is his 1979 film that he actually made. He went to South Korea to make that because South Korea was offering a, the government was offering film grants to filmmakers to come to South Korea to make movies. Uh, but the, the deal was he had to use primarily South Korean crew and he had to make two movies so he made legend of the mountain and another film which i also watched raining in the mountain um legend of the mountain is one of the most interesting interesting films i've ever seen and i if you like art house films i recommend it fully 100 percent. if you don't don't recommend it at all don't (laughs) which is strange one of those it's one of those movies where like there's I don't know. There's there's so so much that you could take issue with, and yet it's kind of perfect for what it is, because um, it's very much doing its own thing, and it is such a slowly paced film. With that being said, it is slowly paced to build up this kind of creepy atmosphere, and I don't really want to talk much about what it's about, but it's about a scholar who goes to uh, has to transcribe a uh, magical Buddhist sutra uh to give to as the government do. as one does uh mm-hmm. the sutra is supposed to you're supposed to chant it and it when like, releases the souls of uh like a battlefield or something and he goes to a fort on a mountain to transcribe it and strange things happen there uh he, like the first 20 minutes is him walking through wonderful scenery 
And it it sounds boring, but I, I think it's possibly the most interesting walking sequence I've I've seen. Uh, that is just walking, of course, because um, obviously there are walking sequences with more than just walking. There's walking and talking sequences. Uh, the entirety of Before Sunset. But like, if you if you really gravitated towards the running and walking parts of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, maybe uh, maybe you'll like <laughs> the first half an hour of this film. That's but my is, favorite part. Of course, as as it should be, uh, but it it takes its time, and once you get to where he's going, it it really is effective at building up this creepy atmosphere, and it's so it's such a unique expression of uh, Chinese Taiwanese that that kind of culture. Um, it is definitely a film that could only be expressed in the in those terms, and is very much kind of sharing that. Um, and the, it's I think it's might be based on an actual legend or a fable from China. I, I don't know because I'm not familiar, but the film acts like it is a fable or something. And it, it, it's a lot of, it gets to be a lot, a heck of a lot of fun at the end because there are, there are like epic drum battles. I won't say any more than that. I won't explain, but it's worth it for that alone. And it's like three hours long. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool film. The Very sweet unique spot. Yes. Uh, and I watched Come Drink With Me, Raining in the Mountain, and The Fate of Lee Kong. Khan? Khan. Three more King Who movies. Uh, they're all, all lots of fun. Uh, the Raining in the Mountain is beautifully shot. Great. Fate of Lee Khan. I want to, I, it has inspired me to start writing a Western that is based on, on the film, kind of, or at least the idea of that. And it's it's pretty cool because it is, it's a wuxia martial arts film, but it takes place. Ninety percent of the film is just inside of a tavern, an inn. Interesting. And it's very, it's very intelligently directed, and like it's like back and forth, and there's intrigue and uh, people betraying and people. There's subterfuge, and it's it's a fun film. Uh, very highly recommend King Hu. Great director doesn't doesn't get enough watches from uh, Western uh, general mm. audiences. I think you should. That's what I have to say about that. Class. Ah. All right. So there, there was our rundown of what we've been watching. Obviously, we've been watching more, but I think it's time to get onto our, our films. First film of the day is Ghostbusters. Chandler, since you, you had never seen this before, would you like to introduce the film? And yes. Yeah. Ghostbusters is a 1984 air quotes comedy about uh, ghost hunters. <laughs> it's one of those movies that um, I haven't seen up until this point. It's a movie that uh, my friend Nick, our friend Nick, really He's wanted me to see before. because he has. Uh, he really wanted me to see it because he thinks I'd uh, really like it. It's one of those movies that I've always avoided because everything about it um, didn't seem like it was up my alley and uh, I can safely say that I was correct I knew Sad. Uh, it's a good movie it's fine I don't have the same adoration for it and I'm and I'm wondering if part of that was just the fact that I haven't grown up with it did you grow up with this movie at all I wouldn't say I grew up with it I did watch it at a uh, obviously a younger age I think mm. I, like early early teens i watched it maybe even earlier maybe like 11 10 10 11 anyway uh 
I wouldn't say it was not a staple of my childhood in, in any mm-hmm. way, but I, I think I watched it maybe twice uh, in my in my childhood and before college, all that kind of stuff. Hmm. But yeah, the general idea of the movie is that uh, uh, Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, and Bill Murray are uh, Ghostbusters, the titular Ghostbusters. But They're ghost hunters in New York. That's the whole movie. Um, it's a movie that I appreciate. I just don't. It, it's hard to judge it because it's a comedy that I don't find funny. There's like two parts that I find kind of funny. But for the most part, I feel like a lot of the comedy comes from uh, Bill Murray, who I just don't I find kind of annoying in this movie. That That's fascinating because part of it is you're not supposed to like him. Like he's kind of a schlubby character. Yeah. Guy. Like that's that's the whole shtick. Of what he's doing. So I guess I can understand it from a certain point of view, but I, I also find I find his performance hilarious. I think he's the funniest part about the film. So I find Harold Ramis very funny. That's about it. Uh, Bill Murray, the thing is about this, I know a lot of people who really like this movie. Uh, part of the reason is that they love Bill Murray because he treats the whole thing like a joke. Mm. Um, Because I guess he didn't really have uh, the confidence in a movie like this for good reason. It's a very odd concept. Um, So it's sort of like that mentality creeps into his performance in a way that just annoys me because it sounds like every it feels like every line of dialogue he has, he has to forcefully interject some sarcasm to let the audience know that he does not have a lot of writing on this. See, I read it completely differently because it's kind of like the point of the character in that he he's yeah. kind of doesn't care about anything other than making a quick buck or uh, getting a woman or whatever. And, you know, he he's a schlubby guy. He, the first scene I find is very funny. Uh, he's testing psychology uh, in into a guy and a girl. And obviously he's, he's sweet on the girl and, and hitting on her subtly. Yeah, because everything she says is right. He's testing extrasensory perception uh if they can guess what's on the back side of a car card he's holding up and the guy gets one right and he's like no sorry wrong and i just find like his is yeah devil may care uh who gives a who gives a fuck attitude to be funny and it works for the character and whatever that is see that, that that's the thing is that i watched that scene and i i understood how people could find it funny but I just don't. And there's no way that I can look at it to a point where I would find it funny. And that's basically the whole movie. It's that I watch these scenes and I think I can see how someone would find this funny. But my sense of humor does not align with the sense of humor of this movie. Yes, but. But I think you can at least recognize that there is pretty good characterization there for Bill Murray, whether yes. whether or not you like it, like the film makes it work. And there's a a point to his actions and he's they set up a character and reasons for why he does things later on in the film going that's to the end. That's why I can't say this is a bad movie. It's just not a no, movie I enjoy, which is fair. Um, and I guess it's fair enough. I don't know. I find the, it the, the f- what? hard, not hard to believe, but annoying. You don't like it, but it's not. I was never <laughs> this is never my hill to die on. This was Nick's deal. Have we have you told him? Your yes. thoughts? I alluded okay. to the fact that I thought it was okay. I haven't okay. expressed it outright. Um, I think the first time that we recorded this, 
Um, I, I mentioned the idea that I think Ghostbusters is more or, or uh, Gremlins is more my thing because the, hmm. these were the two biggest movies of the summer that year. Both oh. comedies aimed at teenagers came out the same summer, summer of 84. Um, and yeah, then I watched Gremlins shortly after Ghostbusters and Gremlins is different because Ghostbusters, I can admit, like there's there's some genuine wit and cleverness to the comedy. Mm-hmm. It's dry. It's sarcastic. It's, it's very. Dry. It's got I love it. some great uh, satirical representations of those in academia. And then you have Gremlins, which is just fucking stupid. And then I realized watching both these where I, th- I realized to myself that my sense of humor is degraded. <laughs> To the point where I laugh at Gremlins and not at Ghostbusters. But again, it's the things that I enjoy about this movie that keep me from saying it's a bad movie. Um, I really like the ghosts. Yes, yes. Like, I think you can. We've both seen the 26. Have you seen the 2016 one? Yeah. So the the ghosts in the 2016 one are, are like giant piles of shit wandering around screen and like there's there's no sense of tension or stakes within that within that film they're not very uh, creatively designed either no what was like in the opening scene that that one guy is trying to get out of the the mansion um gabe, gabe from the from office, the office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you're like oh so they he died because like i think it cuts on him screaming as yeah. the ghost like no he just shit his pants lol great uh-huh. i should take these seriously and and fucking hell but in like the first the first scene of ghostbusters is 20 not 2016 1984 yes uh is serious nice quiet scene of you explore spooky you're exploring the library and uh with the librarian and it happens upon a ghost and you know the ghosts aren't threatening Right, like they're they're not threatening anyone. No one's necessarily in danger. Like gremlins, you don't. It doesn't outright state what the ghosts are capable of, what they're going for. So there's a bit of mystery, and the mystery is what keeps the stakes and the tension there with the ghosts. And you know, it's it's a lot of variety too, because you have that opening ghost in the library, who's essentially just like a a zombified specter. Hmm. You have Slimer, who's just uh, the Wario of ghosts. Um, you got the the like skeleton cab driver, that weird little mm-hmm. arm thing that flies at you. you. Got the uh the the stay puffed marshmallow man, and you got David Bowie at the end. And you know it's a it's a good amount of uh, variety. And this is I think this is yet another film in the Jaws category of cinema, where because of budgetary and technolo- technological limitations. They obviously can't flood the screen with mm. ghosts and everything and do everything necessarily they want to, but the the limitations and the budgetary. Oh, Zoom is telling me my internet connection is unstable. Yeah, you paused for a little bit. So did you? But I think that's probably that's that's my fault. It seems to be fine now. Uh, but the budgetary limitations, you know, you have ghosts specifically. Uh, positioned throughout the film there's not a lot of them and the fact that you know you can't spend so much time on them is uh it works towards that that mystery factory factor and you don't overload people with nonsense like the 2016 one does yeah 
Um, but you know, again, speaking to just the whole, uh, Oh, you, you froze again. I did. Are, are we back? I think we're back. Yes. Uh, just to touch on the structure, structural issues again, that I have with it. Um, like th- that first scene in the library, it clearly establishes that ghosts are a real thing. And then the formation of the Ghostbusters is shrouded in this doubt, specifically from Bill Murray, where he's like, doesn't believe that ghosts exist. And I find that whole part of the, the film just to be dull because it's mm. it's writing on something that we already know is false. And, you know, his 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 reaction to seeing Slimer is funny, but I just thought it's it's such a weird script choice. See, I'm going to I'm going to disagree with you there because I think it is it clearly delineates like the first act of the film, which is they're in uh, employed by the university in some nefarious uh, Mm -hmm. underground layer and they get kicked out. And obviously Venkman, Bill Murray's character, it doesn't believe in ghosts. He's just kind of a bit of a hack. And his like there's a mini arc in that first act of the film of him realizing ghosts are, are real. So like there's there's a change there. And that realization that they're real spurs his desire to create a small business based around getting ghosts. And that's where the rest of the plot jumps off from. I think that's that's a well-structured uh, opening setup for a film. Well, then the other issue I have is the the sort of sidelining of Sigourney Weaver's character in the subplot until mm. it becomes convenient again. But that's not really that big of a deal. Um, I think the only awful part of this movie is the uh, the, the Dan Aykroyd uh, ghost oral, which is just so stupid. <laughs> That I I can't I cannot disagree with you there. It's cringe. It doesn't age well. No, it's not. It doesn't. It doesn't not age well in like Revenge of the Nerds type thing where you're like it's problematic. It's just stupid. And I I don't even I remember it. it. I like I got to that point in the film. I don't remember this. This is terrible. It would make more sense if it was Bill Murray's character. Yeah, yes, it still it would. wouldn't be good. But it would make more sense. Yes, there it would and, have a reason for being yeah. there. And it would even it would even make more sense if it was someone like Harold Ramis's character, who might, might be funnier. <laughs> yeah, who who you know he's he's so socially awkward that it could be kind of funny. But you pick the worst character to possibly have this happen to, and it's just I don't need to see Dan Aykroyd's old face. It's just oh, it's so stupid. <laughs> Um, but again, filmmaking wise, I love the technology, the the concept. I said this last time, but it's one of those concepts that was as a kid. If this is my introduction to this concept, I feel like I would have had much more adoration for it. But I was a huge fan of Luigi's Mansion, which is the same concept, but in a game that I really loved as a kid. So going back to this, it's hard to separate my my introduction to that idea through Luigi's Mansion through this. Um, sure. But you know, if they're catching ghosts. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think a lot of people gravitate towards that concept because it is unique. It. I don't think there's really anything else quite like it, necessarily. I don't know. Uh, Men in Black is kind of like that. Kind of. A, a similar style, not ghosts, obviously, but it, similar concept too. Yes. Yes. Uh, the Brothers Grimm. 
don't know, not the movie. Anyway, but when it came out, it was it was a very yeah. unique, original, fun, quirky characters. Regardless of you know what you think of the characters, they are or their arcs or lack thereof. Uh, it it's quirky and it is interesting. It's doing a unique thing. It's particular. I think it's well shot for the most part. It is a so it is a solid film with a very fun idea, and that's what people latch onto. And I think that's that's all it has to be. I don't. Yeah. I at least I was never claiming it was any kind of comedic masterpiece and maybe maybe nick i'm not sure nick would even claim that i think he, he might have been pushing it up just because you hadn't seen it but mm. who knows it is enjoyable enough i wasn't bored i was bordering yeah. on board but i wasn't completely bored well i'm glad you weren't completely completely bored. it does have, <laughs> have good... you seen ghostbusters 2 i have it's been so long so long i don't remember it really i remember i think the ending Something about the Statue of Liberty and uh, Marshmallow Fluff and the museum in New York. I don't know. It, it's a strange film. But uh, the thing, one of the things you're talking about, like the effects, like really hold up everything. But some of the practical effects are even even more fun. There's matte paintings in the in the film. The Dana's apartment gets blown out at one point, and when the Ghostbusters go up there, there's this great panorama of over uh, Central Park. And it's all painted, the uh, skyline of New York and uh, on the background of that set. And that's really cool. And then earlier on in the film, when uh, Dana first goes home, she has groceries and she puts them on the counter. Her uh, her apartment's obviously haunted. And we see the eggs start like flipping out of the carton and they land on the counter and start cooking, frying on the counter Sizzling. itself. Yep. Yeah, it, and it's it's an actual counter. And so they must have like made a counter into a stovetop, a fry pan sheet, whatever, which is great. It's just a lot of fun. It's so simple. And yet it's so much fun to watch that that happen and know that it's it's something that's actually happening. It's a real practical thing. Mm -hmm. There's some stop motion, too, that uh, looks bad, but bad stop motion is still charming. Stop motion is cute. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't I don't hate this movie i don't even dislike it it's one of those things where as I, I tried as much as i could to just not let the legacy of the the movie influence my uh opinion on it um maybe it did a little bit but the theme song kicks ass that much is true it's of course song. it's it's popular for a reason yeah, yeah. it's popular yeah. even outside of the movie it's got halloween jam yeah i i think it's it's funny it it it's grown on the the comedy aspect of it has grown on me. I've never really thought of it as like a comedy per se. It's more just weird, wacky characters do, yeah, weird, wacky things. And it if you laugh, great. But it, it's always just been a fun kind of fan, sci-fi film, more so than it is a comedy. But this this past round of watching it, I was more kind of in tuned with laughing at Bill Murray's performance and a lot of the fun, very dry jokes that are kind of littered throughout that you kind of have to find. It kind of makes you, it makes you work for, uh, for your comedy. You have to be paying attention uh, to a lot of the, the small things like in the background visually. And the, there's some great, particularly great stuff when they're in the hotel, the whole, whole hotel sequence in the center of the film, maybe. Yeah. Towards uh, the end when the they, they go to catch uh, Slimer. In the, yeah. in the hotel that that in particular there's great stuff and then there's rick moranis who is always 
just a funny, funny looking man and funny, funny looking man, funny acting man. He's a funny guy. Yeah, that that part of the movie had the biggest laugh for me, which is when Bill uh, Murray pulled the tablecloth out from under everything. And he said, the flowers are still on the table. That, that I don't know why that part made me laugh hard, but that's about it. You know, oh, I'm glad you laughed at something. <laughs> it's better than the 2016 one. There you go. But that's not saying much. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I think the only other thing that I, I noticed this time around uh, that I thought was strange and uh, silly. And I won't even call it funny. It's silly. But when the at the very end, uh, spoiler alert, uh, the Ghostbusters are pulling up to the the apartment building where Dana is and where Gozer is trying to uh, enter the world from. And in the mm-hmm. crowd surrounding them, there are uh, Orthodox Jews, Orthodox Christians, uh, Muslims, like just in the background. And like there's normal crowd members and they're kind of hidden within there. And they're just going crazy for the Ghostbusters. Like they're like these religious fanatics <laughs> are cheering on the Ghostbusters. And it's it's it. So silly. So, so freaking silly. <laughs> I liked, I like noticing that. I'm not sure it's a point of quality or not, but fun detail. It's like the scene in Hail Caesar. Arguably a better scene, but who knows? Oh, so yeah, Ghostbusters. I, I like it. It's fun. Uh, it's good. It's- most people older than our age or older have seen it and have grown yeah. up with it in some capacity, probably. The younger generation, probably. As in, no, should watch Ghostbusters. It's fun. I like it. You might too. Yeah. You might, no. or you might be like Chandler and not like Bill Murray. Lukewarm, lukewarm. Now, speaking of a funny movie, our BFI movie of the week. Would you like to introduce? I would. Our BFI movie of the week is Sherlock Jr. It is a 1924 silent film, black and white, obviously, by director Buster Keaton. It is number 59 on the BFI critics list. Uh, See if there's anyone interesting who voted for it. Oh, that's right. 25 critics voted for the film. Only one director did. It's 546th place on the director's poll. Strange. Very, very strange. They obviously haven't seen it. Obviously. But one of the one of the things I think I see in the film is. Definitely, it is a piece of film history in terms of like, here is this film and you can see a lot of things that were done originally here and you can trace forward in in the, the whole history of film, which I think is something that appeals to critics i would have thought it would have appealed to uh, directors too because it's i thought great. if anything it would appeal to the directors because more so than a lot of the other silent movies of this era uh buster keaton does some magic he uses filmmaking which is odd to say but like a lot of silent <laughs> films are just like here here's a camera here's some scenes Here's some inner titles to tell you what the characters are saying to each other but no buster keaton is using his camera he's moving it around he's doing uh fun things with all of that with himself with the camera itself he's editing using editing oh my god um we'll get into that but anyway sherlock jr is a uh, a very simple story it's only 45 minutes long a movie in quotation marks and it's uh buster keaton plays a film 
projectionist, uh, a bit of bit of an idiot uh, who's sweet on a girl, Dunce. and yeah. uh, he's sweet on a girl. He's a movie projectionist, and he also is an aspiring detective. And things happen, and uh, about two one third of the way through the film, he falls asleep, and he dreams of himself in the the movie as a famous detective a la Sherlock Holmes, Hercule Poirot, yada, yada, yada. And uh, it gets crazier from there. Chandler, what did you think of Sherlock Jr.? I really like it. Um, I'm going to go ahead and get the my one issue with the movie out of the way first. And it's, again, it's the structure of this movie where it's it's like a, a, a good bulk of this movie, the, the best part of this movie takes place in a dream sequence when he falls asleep in the projection booth and everything that happens in that dream sequence while be being very fun ultimately does not matter to the story because the character of Sherlock Jr. Buster Keaton's character is so inactive as a protagonist where his arc is completed while he's sleeping. <laughs> well, he is he is a little active in the beginning in the beginning. But yes, yeah, I, I would. I, I think he's a he's a weak character. I mean, if you could even call character. him that, but it's also not really the point, I suppose. Yeah, that, that's um, that's why it doesn't bother me that much. It's very oddly structured for a feature length film. Again, feature yeah. length film. Well, it's um, it's saving grace. I think is like it's it's forty five minute runtime. I like if this yeah. was a feature length film, I'm not sure it would work in the way it's structured and paced and and the characters are are created. But the fact that it's only 45 minutes long, it it flies by and it doesn't necessarily need to just it's not trying to justify a longer runtime. So it doesn't need to have super in-depth characters or any, anything necessarily like that. It doesn't go on long enough for its, its shtick to become offensive. But Buster Keaton's character in this movie on paper, he's uh, ineffective, dull. But Buster Keaton himself is just so magnetic as a performer that it's hard to not like him and sympathize with him. Um, but yeah, there's a there's a very clear divide in this movie where the beginning where it's real life, not in a dream. The the stunts are still equally kind of insanely coordinated, but a lot more grounded. Hmm. Whereas when he falls asleep, goes into the movie, that's where shit gets insane. That's where this movie becomes truly great in my eyes. Yeah, it I, I, do, I don't care for that first part of the film, uh, particularly. Uh, I think I think it's good. It's well directed. Yeah, uh, I, I actually watched a little bit of it today because it's just trying to as a refresher for our, our conversation. And, it you know, there is some nice visual characterization for Buster Keaton's character. Obviously, there's not anything complicated there, but it's a silent film. So how much could there be in, to begin with? If you're really trying, um, but there is like fun stuff of where there's this gag, which I didn't find particularly funny, but it is a good character moment of him. He's sweeping up the uh, the movie theater and people keep coming up to him asking, oh, I lost a dollar. And that's a great little characterization moment because he's kind of gullible, kind of an idiot, um, almost painfully gullible uh, <laughs> in, in that moment. Uh, but he is. Despite being. But in that. But he also what's important about that is that he's he makes him immediately symp uh, sympathetic yeah. because he does keep giving this dollar away. Yes. You realize he's not selfish. He 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 respects the truth over everything. 
even when it's not necessarily truth. Uh, and it's it's almost it's almost a morality kind of film. Like there there's a moral to the tale, kind of, sort of, not not really, I suppose. But like well, it alludes to a moral. It, it begins with a quote. The film. Um, it's like never try to do two things at once or something along that lines. Like that's the the moral that the film starts off with. And, you know, these days, if, if you start a movie off with a, a quote or a moral, you seem to be the most pretentious filmmaker of all time. Back then, it's kind of charming. Um, Give it a but it's Right. And there's like. There is like a, a like a very simple lesson here at the very beginning of like lying and being honest as a person. And it's interesting that there's a great little setup and payoff where he once he buys a box of chocolates for his uh his sweetheart and wants to appear like he he bought her a more expensive box of chocolates so he changes the number to be four dollars instead of one dollar and then that comes back to bite him because the guy uh his rival suitor who buys a four box four dollar box of chocolates or whatever um puts a stolen pocket watch in his pocket uh for like it which says like uh, not no he doesn't put this pocket watch he puts the slip because he pawned the seat it. yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's it's you know it's a nice little callback and i feel like it's almost in line with that whole honesty arc of his character uh, of like if you do something dishonest it'll come back to haunt you and obviously it comes back to haunt his uh rival suitor as well who gets his comeuppance in the end spoiler alert but i mean it's it's well probably, yeah probably guess that but yeah it's that comeuppance that you know it it Nothing that he does <laughs> really uh, factors into this. He kind of just falls asleep while uh, everything gets fixed. And he, he does try in the beginning. Yeah, he does. Like one of my, my favorite little the... jokes in the film is uh, he has his little book of how to be a detective. And like tip number five is follow your man closely. And he just literally like runs behind the, the other guy and is following him less than like a foot away. And it, it's a funny visual it doesn't make sense while i'm describing it necessarily but yeah. it it is he basically powerful. mimics this guy's movements while also only being like two or three inches away from him so it starts right. off like pretty insane and it just keeps getting crazier the more detailed his movements become that he's mimicking on the spot the comedy a lot of the comedy in this comes from your disbelief and like how is how is this actually working out for buster keaton Part of it is like, how can you follow someone that close without tripping or doing something? And it's it's amazingly well coordinated. And it's not just Buster Keaton doing that. I mean, it is, but it's also the guy in front of yeah. him who has to, you know, coordinate his his movements too. But it's that kind of thing that really, to me, um, it, it really sort of solidifies the the silent film genre because it's something that is universal. Like you can show this movie to anyone in any country any different time period they'll understand the the context of the film and be able to get the story just from the visuals alone i mean there's you know there's, there's a bit of dialogue or whatever but the comedy like it's just as funny now as it was 100 years ago and it's going to be just as funny 100 years from now because it's just so pure and even if you don't find it funny it is at the very least uh engaging and still magical to watch like uh, buster keaton is a master of visual trickery and doing it for real not effects and that comes through like even if you're you're so used to effects and seeing things that are fake but 
you know, obviously look photorealistic. Uh, I think it still comes across today very, very well. And that's why I think it, this might be a, a very good start. Like if you want to start watching silent films, I might recommend start here because, you know, there might be better ones, uh, the general, not shorter ones, but there, but there's not necessarily shorter ones. It's short, sweet, and it's still, uh, you know, jaw dropping some of the, what he manages to accomplish in this. Yeah, like diving through the window and then coming out the other side fully dressed as a woman. Crazy. Him diving through a suitcase and coming out the other side of the wall. Insane. How's he it's doing? One of those things, Who knows? Yeah, you don't. Ex- there's no there's no cutting around it, you know, mm-hmm. like some uh, filmmakers later do. Um, and it's one of those things where just for a brief moment, you're you're mesmerized because you're like, oh, what? How do you do that? Obviously, you know, we know a little bit more, so we can think about it for a few seconds and understand how we did it. But that shock, even I, I rewatched some of the scenes, too. And even though I know exactly how he did it and what happens, it's just seeing it just p- play out in real time, uncut. It's magic. It's movie magic. And it's almost like the, the film is Buster Keaton's style as a filmmaker, as an actor is putting you almost in a detective role because you're constantly thinking of like, how did he do that? And you're thinking like, hmm, could he have done this or this or that? Like some things are magic tricks, obviously, and some things are just like feats of uh, well-timed uh, staging. Like the uh, there's a great shot where he's on top of the building and he uh, there's a like an entrance pole, toll, toll, toll pole that yeah. he he grabs onto the top and he he follows it down into the backseat of a moving vehicle, which is just, wow. It's it's so charming to watch. That there. entire car chase, too, where he's in the motorcycle. They're, they, so, it's it's such one of the best long, car chases. It is. It's such Until, a long car chase with nobody driving the motorcycle. I still don't even know how he did it. No one's driving. Um, no one's really following him, really. <laughs> <laughs> and yet it's a car chase, and it's funny, and it's amazing, and you don't ha- no, don't know how he did, does it. Yeah, it, it it starts off crazy because you, you realize he's going like 60 miles an hour down a road with nobody steering the, the bike. And then you're like, oh, my God, that's insane. And it just keeps getting crazier because then there's another scene where he goes down this bridge that collapses as he rides it without a without a driver. It's just like you don't again, it, it's that universality of it. You don't need to be from that time period to just look at that and be like, what the fuck is he doing? How are you not dead? Yeah. The, you know, if I, if I were, and I do recommend it, it's, I feel like you kind of have to get past the first 15 minutes because that seems more kind of generic silent film-esque with some, some comedy, some, it is uh, at least. It's not bad. No, it's not bad at all. It just feels more like what you might expect from a silent film. And it does have some really great, like setups and payoffs. And I think it ultimately does really paint him as uh, an idiot blumbling idiot who all of his plans and, and desires don't work out which makes the the second half uh of him in his dream as this detective so exhilarating seeing all this stuff uh like work out and he's it doesn't even appear to be trying and um so like you have to get past that first part i didn't find it particularly engaging didn't the second time either but it's not bad it's short and it it does a good job of leading into what I think is some of the most creative and fun 30, 45 minutes of filmmaking. 45 minutes, yeah. 30. Uh, hold on. I'm trying to. I, I need to pull this up real quick. Yes. Are, are you are you from familiar with the. Um, 
the the Yiddish term <laughs> of uh, the shlemiel. Yes. I feel Explain like explained for the audience though. Okay. Well there's the there, it's it's like this Yiddish term uh, uh it's an archetype of Jewish humor. You have the shlemiel and the shlemazel. The shlemiel is the guy who accidentally spills soup on somebody and the shlemazel is the guy who gets the soup spilled on him. I feel like it's the perfect way to describe like Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. Because Charlie hmm. Chaplin to me always felt like the shlemiel and I don't find that guy as funny. <laughs> Whereas Buster Keaton is very much the schlemazel, and that's why I find his movies just a lot funnier without the context. Hmm. Because they're, I mean, they're both similar. They're both uh, silent movie icons, comedy yeah. icons. Charlie Chaplin, you know, branched out a little bit more. Buster Keaton sort of lived and died with the silent era, but yeah, it's just something about him. I just I find fascinating. I I find. At least between the two, I, I tend to prefer Buster Keaton. Uh, just in general, obviously, I, I I've seen more of Charlie Chaplin, and Charlie Chaplin has a lot more like really great films per se. Um, mm. But with Buster Keaton, his films just have some such energy to them that you don't find necessarily elsewhere in uh, in silent films. I mean, even his feature length film, uh, genuinely feature length, the the general that just flies by. It, it, it's surprising for a, a feature length. Uh, silent movie but you know the the however slow or boring however uh, that first 15 minutes is it's just the rest of the film just flies by and i, I think in total the 45 minutes of sherlock jr is yeah enjoyable fun amazing yeah. and it's it does it really does particularly the editing i think buster keaton got the editing down so well and that really propels the film forward and it he does some some fun tricks some fun visual tricks that match cuts some of the the probably the best early example of the match cut being used when he's first entering trying to get into the film and it, it he keeps falling over and doing stuff and it, <laughs> as he's falling it cuts to a different scene and it's like this he's in the same position and it's it, it it's brilliant. It's, watch it's, it. it's playing with cinematic tools in the context of an actual movie. It's right. Crazy. And the and then like the effect of him walking into the movie itself is, is seamless as ever. And half of this stuff is like, you know, there's stuff like D.W. Griffith, who is doing narratives and being racist and all that. And <laughs> but like you look at that and then you look at Sherlock Jr. and like. I don't know. Like Sherlock Jr. feels like the more inspri inspired product on a whole. Like, yeah, Birth of a Nation stuff like that, which unfortunately I have seen, um, I, been yeah. subjective to subjected to. Sure, like it, it feels more like an amalgamation of silent film things from different films and all that kind of stuff, and isn't particularly original except for the fact that it's racist. That feels very original and unique to that film. <laughs> uh, but well, the general is a nice Keaton, in between. Yes, it is a nice thing. <laughs> but Buster Keaton constantly Wildly feels racist. original, like he's him and the creative team working around him because I don't want to give it all to Buster Keaton necessarily. Yeah. Uh, but you feel like he's genuinely doing new things with cinema and on the camera and it shows. It's just it, it's it's amazing to me that he can get such visceral re reactions out of me to his filmmaking almost 100 years later. Yeah. 
that's why I just think he, he he's perfect and his movies are just going to get better with time. Although, ironically enough, I'll just say this is not the one I would choose to be on the BFI list. And that's fine. Um, I, so. I, you know, we we for those new viewers, in case you are one, we always go. Oh, uh, yeah. We do our little review. Uh, hopefully sometimes sometimes we manage to say stay spoiler free and, and then have a delineation between those two. Sometimes we don't anyway. And then after all that's done, we go into the. Do you think it deserves to be on the BFI list where we presumptuously tell the the hundreds of critics who voted on that list what we think they that should have wrong. done? And mm-hmm. we do often tell them that they're wrong. And in this case, I think we're both going to say they're wrong. Um, not completely wrong. Not because it's a bad movie. Not because we're, we're yeah. not. I don't think we are knocking or demeaning the film by saying it doesn't deserve to be on the BFI list. It's more of a practical matter, I think. Yeah, Uh, this one, it's really good. um, But that really the the really the magic of this movie is shoved in between some weird storytelling decisions. (laughs) Uh, And I know that the general is coming up and I much prefer the general as a complete narrative experience. Aside from the fact that it's uh, about those bastard Union soldiers, those (laughs) those devils, those northern sticking it to the Unioners. Those pesky yeah. Yankees. Yeah, it. This one's weird because there have been it's it's a short film, technically, by our standards today. And I've expressed on the podcast before my reluctance to put short films on this list because they feel. Different, but I'm uh, not as opposed to this as I was to like a day in the country. Well, yes, because that is not only a short film, it's an unfinished <laughs> movie. I, yeah, yeah, but it just feels weird like okay so you're gonna call a 45 minute uh short film however creative it is and you're gonna put that up against what's a movie what what movie did we just watch a gear no the gear's not the best anyway it just feels weird comparing it to feature length films and that isn't necessarily a a disqualifier in and of itself for me just that added on to there is another buster keaton i like more and then i think um this one does have its have its issues. I would have liked um, some more engagement uh, with that first half. I don't know. It, it just seems le- more like the su- the story is superficial, and everything on top of it is the creativity within Buster Keaton's acting, his stunts, and the editing, and that stuff I really like. But I, yeah. I, I just I think there's other films I I think deserve to be on here over this. So yeah, that's it. Just barely great, missed though. the mark. Yeah. 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 Certain, certainly one of the I, best greatest films ever made not so sure about 100 yeah uh but it's a definite definite recommend i think from both of us it, it's an easy recommend too it's on yeah. youtube for free it's short if you want to watch a silent film you never have and you're at the very least curious i think this is the one you should go with yeah yes <laughs> Yeah. And now we're done. Goodbye. And finished. <laughs> Round uh, two. Yes. So um next week. Uh do we want do we want to talk about Minari? Right now? No, not right now. Next oh, episode. Yeah. Next episode. I mean, might as well just because while well, it's still in our brains. So 
we'll discuss Minari and our BFI movie of the week next week is The Conformist, the Bernardo Bertolucci film from 70s, 80s. I don't know. It's Italian. That's what it is. And then the week after that, we will do Dragon Inn and Goodbye Dragon Inn, neither of which are on the BFI, but. But for fun. For fun. For the culture. For fun. And then after that, we'll do, I don't know, maybe blow up, blow out. Oh, the Oscars. Do you want to say oh, anything about the Oscars? the Oscars? Don't have to. They're, they're fine. The 2020, the 2021 Oscars celebrating the year of 2020. Uh, skippable, skippable year in the Oscars overall, probably. I think we all got that sense anyway. I don't think anyone needs us to tell them that, but I don't know. It's fine. I think I did my predictions and I got 15 and... 15 right, 7 wrong. So uh, pretty good. Pretty good pretty I think, good. yeah. I didn't even bother this year. Do you think, so Nomadland won Best Picture. Is that something you are down with or? I, I'm not opposed. I'm not hmm. opposed. It was a good movie. I like that movie. Um, hmm. Just as it happens every year, now that it's Best Picture, I see a lot of people shitting on the movie just on, the Do online you? discourse i am sure. i like it but it's one mm. of those things where i wasn't passionate about the, i wasn't really passionate about any of the movies mm. i mean i liked most of these movies but i didn't have you know par- last year was great because i had i had a movie that i desperately wanted to win and i wa- had a movie that i desperately wanted to lose and they both seemed equally like uh neck and neck what so was it was the one a fun you year wanted to lose joker Oh, Joker, of course. Oh, Joker, of course. Uh, 1917. Uh, I don't remember what else to nominate that year, but those two in particular. I thought they had a decent chance at winning. No, it was 1917 that I really thought was going to win. So. 1917, still our least viewed YouTube video. Fun fact. I'll keep bringing that up every time. Dumb. Uh, the, the only thing, I haven't seen Soul yet. That's the one. Neither have I. Biggest, like, gap i think I, I i fully expect to like it i mean everyone says it's great yeah. um but it was one of the reasons why i got the i predicted minari to win best original score and i predicted it solely because i hadn't seen soul so i couldn't really comment um but i really like the minari soundtrack i like Spoilers. it too but you know what was my favorite soundtrack of the year jacob mank that is that is the one that is the one award that I actually wanted Mank to win. <laughs> I was surprised that Mank won for best cinematography. Um, not that it doesn't deserve it. I actually was thinking about predicting Mank simply because I'm such a uh, a fan of black and white cinematography that just is like a principled vote. But then I ultimately went with Nomadland, which I think is it's a beautiful film. Yeah. It's also like news of the world. Still, I haven't seen that. My mom wants to see it, so I'll probably watch it eventually. Uh, the trial of the Chicago Seven looks awful. What the what the hell are those doing in the best cinematography category? <laughs> like, no, seriously, what are they doing there? Minari looks gorgeous. What is else Minari is not oh, sound Sound of Metal? That that's a well shot that's film. A great fucking movie. Certainly more so than the trial of Chicago seven. I mean, if I mean, just in general, if you like that film, you were Look, suckered. 
I, I can't sucker even if you necessarily, like Chicago 7. I can't comment on any other element or facet of the movie, but Tenet was a, also a very good looking movie. Yeah. I haven't Just seen for it. Nolan. Looks yeah, good. He, he, that is one thing he does well. Yeah. I don't, I don't mind uh, Mank getting cinematography. I'm not, you know, I don't it mind was fine. it though. Uh, it is one, a good if, shot film. Yeah. If Mank deserved anything, in that in the technical side, I thought the sound they did more to mimic the sound of the 40s than they did the cinematography. Hmm. Because they like they recorded everything on like vintage or uh, relatively vintage equipment and then played it back and recorded the playback in like an echoey uh, building to sort of get hmm. that feel. I thought that was pretty cool, but obviously sound of metal, if it was going to win anything, it was going to be sound. So I'm fine with it. Yeah. Um, I do think it's absolutely hilarious that Anthony Hopkins won. That is by far the best part of the night. So fucking funny. The, I think the only thing, my only complaint with this Oscars, like real complaint, the only thing I think they really got wrong uh, is best original screenplay they gave to Promising Young Woman. Which I watched. And it's good, but it is not best screenplay worthy. <laughs> it is kind of your run of the mill, nice, fun drama that comes out every year. Like it's nothing that's special. It's not a particularly monumental film or anything like that. I'm like, why? Why would you give it to that? See, I thought Minari had a really good screenplay. It does. That's the one I. I wanted Minari to win and I predicted Sound of Metal because I thought Sound of Metal had a pretty great uh, screenplay as well. No, it did. It did. And somehow they went with Promising Young Woman. Woman. Okay, then. I don't I have no desire to see that movie. All right. Other than that, that's all I have to comment on. For the most part, it was predictable, bland Oscar year. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's why I'm not offended. I'm not like hyped. No, there's not Very anything warm. to be really offended by. No, you're not invested. But, uh, but does does the uh, do the 2021 Oscars deserve to be on the BFI best film of all time? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> all right. You're gonna put any Oscar on the 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 BFI list? It's the 2020 Oscars. Uh. So next time we're going to be reviewing The Conformist, Bernard Bertolucci, and Minari. Minari. Stay tuned for that.